0: Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today you're listening to...
1: Kathleen Powell, Curator of the St. Catharines Museum and Supervisor of Historical Services.
0: Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum.
2: And Sarah Nixon, Public Programmer here at the Museum.
1: A staggering 137 men lost their lives as a result of accidents that occurred during the construction of the Welland Ship Canal. This number is shockingly high. To our knowledge, the largest loss of life in the history of Canadian government infrastructure projects. Men were killed in a number of ways drowning, electrocution, struck by objects, crushing injuries, falls, buried alive, and more. It was a recognized fact that there could be workplace fatalities in any project this large, and it seems to have been generally accepted that there would be approximately one death for every million dollars spent on the works.
2: This project and its death toll would lead to improvements in the conditions of workers on major infrastructure projects in Canada, including provision for first aid and hospitals and a more formal system of reporting and assessing blame. The men, and they were all men, who lost their lives during the course of the work were not just nameless, faceless workers. They came from all walks of life. They were young, old, married, and single. They were born in Canada and recent immigrants. Some were veterans of the First World War. They were engineers, carpenters, laborers, a water boy, electricians, and much more. Their lives can provide us a touchstone to the past.
0: Today's podcast will focus on the history of the Welland Ship Canal and look deeply into the significance of some of the most gruesome deaths during construction. To learn more about the fallen workers discussed in today's podcast, please visit our exhibition Heroes in Peace, Building the Welland Ship Canal, here at the St. Catharines Museum. The exhibit is open through February 1st, 2018. But first, a word about some of our upcoming programs.
2: The museum is open late until 8 p.m. every Tuesday until Thanksgiving weekend. Come check us out for a different kind of museum experience. We have all sorts of special open late programming. Every week, we feature a special out-of-the-vault exhibit displaying objects and stories that rarely leave the collection's vault. Also coming up is our Kids Art Night on Tuesday, August 8th, hosted by Four Cats Art Studio in St. Catharines. It's drop-in anytime between 6 and 8 p.m. and get creative with clay art. This program is open by donation. Our ever-popular Books and Brews is back for fall 2017. Grab a brew from our partners Monte Cafe and Lounge and join us for an enriching discussion of a book each month. This season, we're honoring Canada 150 with three books that explore Canadian identity and what that means. Our first books and brews for this fall is September 19th, featuring Thomas King's Green Grass Running Waters. For more information and for registration, visit our website. We'll see you there.
0: In 1824, William Hamilton Merritt, founding member of the Welland Canal Company and de facto canal builder, broke ground to begin the construction of the new Welland Canal. This canal, privately funded and built, would be made of 40 wooden locks and serve as the first major uninhibited transportation route into the upper Great Lakes. Following his service as a captain of the provincial dragoons during the War of 1812, Merritt returned to his family lands at Twelve Mile Creek and when his milling operations suffered due to the lack of water, he began his surveys to build a canal to supply water and support local economy. As one of the first major infrastructure projects in Canada, the canal was opened in 1829. Built mainly by American and Irish canal laborers who had also worked on the Erie Canal in New York State, Niagara was no stranger to large flocks of immigrant laborers coming to work, some of whom would settle and become the foundations of our community. The second Welland Canal or the first reconstruction of the canal, was undertaken between 1840 and 1845 due to the poor condition of wooden locks and the increase in traffic and manufacturing operations. German and Scottish stonemasons provided needed skill for the Second Canal to flourish, and the Assembly of Upper Canada, with Merritt now a member, provided some much-needed financial assistance. The Second Canal era saw a great affluence and cosmopolitanism arrive in st catharines that this canal era is greatly romanticized and associated with without question the third welling canal or the second reconstruction is generally referred to as the forgotten canal as ships grew larger and international trade changed the face of the national economy after confederation a new canal was needed once again this one taking a brand new route right across the city and up the escarpment in 27 locks on the far east side of St. Catharines. I say that it is the forgotten canal because there is little evidence of it left. Unlike the second canal, the third was a federal project with a focus on international trade and little interest in the local industry. In their book, This Great National Object, Roberta Styran and Robert Taylor describe the situation as such. In the 1880s, enterprising local entrepreneurs looked forward to opening mills on the new canal, especially the long stretch between Porta and Thorold. But it soon became obvious that there was to be provision neither for ships stopping or turning on the route, nor for industrial sites. In 1881, St. Catherine's MP Reichert asked in the House of Commons why no provision had been made for a turning basin on the new canal. A serious defect, he thought. Charles Tupper, the Minister of Railways and Canals, explained the principal business on this canal, for a number of years at least, must be through trade. Therefore, there will be no mills or factories or other places where vessels will be at all likely to unload or receive cargo on the new line. And since no infrastructure existed on the Third Canal, it was a simple decision to have it filled in and basically erased from the landscape, after the 4th and present Welland Ship Canal was opened in 1932. The 4th Canal, or the Welland Ship Canal, was the solution to the new massive over 200-meter-long vessels now making their way into the shipping industry at the turn of the century. A new entrance port at Port Weller was constructed, and eight locks over 200 meters long were built in a fairly straight line to Lake Erie. As our podcast today details... There were plenty of accidents and deaths widely reported by the press media. The Ship Canal was opened in 1932, cementing more than 150 years of shipping history in Niagara, encouraging an explosion of international trade, and contrasting the meek wooden locks built by Merritt to support his local milling industry. Our upcoming segment contains some descriptive language that may be uncomfortable for some listeners. In June, we selected a few of the workers from our exhibit Heroes in Peace, Building the Welland Ship Canal, to be featured in an audio guide. The workers selected represent a wide variety of the ways workers were injured and killed. The audio guide is composed of the articles that ran in the St. Catherine Standard, usually from the coroner's report, that detailed the work accident and death. Photos of the news articles, as they ran in the paper, can be found in the footnotes to this episode on our blog. We'll hear the articles from three of the workers today, and Kathleen will provide some further analysis of these tragic events. The Saint Catherine Standard, july twenty sixth, nineteen twenty seven. Boy falls eighty feet to death at lock number two. Antonio Collini, fifteen year old son of Ben Collini, Port Weller was instantly killed about 10 o'clock this morning when he fell off the wall of Lock 2 of the Welland Ship Canal at Port Weller. The deceased was employed as a water boy on Section 2 and was walking along the lock wall in pursuit of his calling when he fell into the lock landing on the bottom some 80 feet below. Just how he came to fall into the lock is unknown. He was dead when picked up by workmen, and the body was removed to the funeral parlors of Winter and Winter, pending funeral arrangements.
1: The story of Antonio Collini is one of the more tragic stories uh, from the Well and Ship Canal project uh, from the deaths on the Welland Ship Canal. All the deaths were tragic, but Antonio Collini was the youngest of the fallen workers. He was 15 years old. He worked on the Welland Ship Canal construction project as a water boy. His father, Benedetto, also worked on the ship canal, but uh, Antonio's job was basically to uh, bring water back and forth between different areas of the worksite for the workers on really hot days, but... Um, from what we know of the accident, it's likely that he tripped on something as he was going along and fell and fell over the side of the lock wall and was killed that way. The sad thing about his death is that the tragedy could have been prevented. Uh, pretty much all of these deaths, the tragedy could have been prevented. But in this case, you know, if the worksite had been cleaned up a bit, potentially, if it had been marked a little bit better, if there had been some sort of protection, fall arrest, or something like that, a fencing along the edge of the lock wall uh, it would have been prevented from that uh, perspective
0: so as a result from kalini's death was there any reaction to uh, safety or were there any improvements of safety being made on the canal afterwards
1: Based on what I've found out and what I know of the worksite, and from looking at many, many photos of the worksite, it doesn't appear that there were any improvements that were made. Uh, it doesn't seem that they took this instance to put up fall protection all along the lock walls, all along the construction site. Most of the men are working at heights without any fall protection. They're not wearing a harness. They're not wearing... Uh, Um, They're not being strapped into anything, Uh, so it doesn't appear that uh, um, there was any major improvement made as far as health and safety goes to keep people from falling over the side of the lock wall. Uh, The coroner's inquest didn't make any recommendations to the effect of uh, improving safety protection uh, in work sites such as this.
0: Was it common for people as young as 15 to be working on the construction site?
1: It's hard to tell completely how young people were that were, how young the workers were that were working on the construction site because we don't have a good comprehensive list of all of the people that worked there and their ages. Uh, There were a lot of very young people working on the Welland Ship Canal and a lot of young people died uh, who were in their uh, late teens, early 20s. But Antonio Collini was definitely the youngest uh, fatality that we know of. Um, However, I don't imagine that it was uncommon to have young people working on the worksite as uh, waterboys supporting workers and that's really just based on the fact that in a lot of industry there were really young people who were working kind of in supporting roles and uh, this doesn't seem like it would be an unusual situation in this particular case. I think one of the uh, tragic uh, and interesting parts of this story is the a family story that mentions that uh, Antonio bought a new suit with his first week's earnings and uh, tragic situation that when he was buried, he was buried in the new suit that he had just recently bought uh, with the earnings from his first job. Lots of the stories that we have about Antonio Collini come from family members who are still around, so it's really great that we have uh, those stories that have been shared with us uh, down through the generations. Uh, We know that uh, Antonio Antonio's father came from Italy. His family joined him later. They had a few more children after they were here. So it was a quite a large family. And uh, one of the stories from the newspaper at the time of his accident mentions workers running across the fields to uh, the Collini farm where his mother was killing chickens to let her know about her son's accident and about his death, uh, which is really a sad, sad story. We also know his younger brother, who was also known as Hugh, uh, was quite young when Collini died. At the age of 13, Hugh decided that he was going to rename himself Antonio or Tony in honor of his brother and uh, uh, continue to go by that name for the rest of his life. I think that the this story and Antonio Collini's story really has a lot of immediacy. It's got a lot of uh, connection that people can make to this story that would really feel familiar. Um, and it really um, helps us to kind of connect to uh, to his story and to the fallen worker's story. Um, and it's, uh, it's one really great example as well of family members who have passed down information. And you can see that the ripple effect of this accident, uh, which happened quite some time ago... Um, is really still with us today.
0: The St. Catherine's Standard, January 23, 1915. Accidental Death. Coroner W.T. Greenwood's jury Friday night found that Estafi Eliasevich, the young Russian teamster who was electrocuted at Port Weller two weeks ago, came to his death accidentally, but they censured George Vale. Vail is the man who saw the wire down, and the soon-to-be victim regarding it curiously. Vail yelled to Astaffi, "'Don't touch it, it will bite,' and then went about his business. Either the Russian didn't believe that the wire would bite, or didn't understand what was said to him, for a few moments later he was found dead with the line grasped in his hand. The jury considered that it was Vail's duty Knowing the danger, to go to the pole and stand guard over the wire until someone else came to take charge or the power was turned off. A couple of witnesses were heard Friday night. Charles McHenry, an electrician employed by the government, brought samples of the wire used and stated that it was capable of carrying twice the load of the electricity that was used by the company. Reginald Quinn, Electrician in the employ of the contractor said he had noticed the wire before the accident and it seemed all right. Gordon McFarlane, electrician, built the line, and he assured the coroner and jury that it was properly built and the wire was all right. He couldn't explain why the wire should break, but said it might have been done by blasting. A. Zebrun, brother-in-law of the victim, swore that the latter knew only a few words of English.
1: Stafi Eliasevich, who was 19 years old, worked on the Welland Ship Canal as a teamster for the Dominion Dredging Company. His story is kind of a common theme related to uh, immigrants coming to Canada and uh, trying to find work and a better life for themselves. And uh, the Welland Ship Canal had quite a number of workers who were immigrant workers and who uh, um, were killed as part of this project, sadly. Estafi was a Russian immigrant and on the day of his death as I mentioned he was working as a teamster and a teamster essentially is the worker who helps to guide the horses and wagons through the work site and on this particular day his wagon was carrying coal for the work site uh, probably for some of the machinery on the work site. As he was carrying coal through the site He came across a live wire that, according to the newspaper report, looks like it was probably sparking. It says something like it was on fire or um, burning on the end, but it was probably sparking. And um, can only really speculate, but the likelihood is is that he tried to move it out of the way so that his wagon and horses could get past. And he grabbed a hold of the wire, which um, was live, and he was instantly electrocuted and killed. In the background story to this particular incident, we find out that uh, Estafi did not speak English almost at all. And it seems like there was very little effort on the worksite site made to uh, make sure that he was uh, aware and understood the hazards of the worksite. Um, and so the question is really, how would he have known what to do in this instance? Would he have known that the site was even... Uh, or that the wire was even um, electrified. There was nothing that came out at the coroner's inquest as to why the wire happened to be broken and happened to be hanging there, although they did interview a number of workers on the site to try to find out if it was a fault with the wire, if the wire was properly built, uh, if it had been used for too long and needed to be replaced, and nothing came out of the inquest related to the quality of the wire. uh, So there was really no... Good resolution from that particular side of things. But, uh, we do know that these work sites were incredibly chaotic. There was debris everywhere, wires everywhere, train tracks, logs, pieces of metal, concrete everything on these work sites. So it's not surprising uh, that accidents happened, but also imagine adding onto that the uh, language barrier and trying to figure out what would you do? How would you navigate this site if you didn't really understand what was going on around you because you didn't speak the language, the predominant language?
0: I think one thing that is telling about this case is that Uh, how new technology could interrupt the worksite and the workflow. And that even if you today, even if you didn't speak English, you most people, I think, would know not to touch a live wire. Um, if it was sparking or on fire. And so even though he didn't speak English, the fact that even a live wire he didn't recognize as a danger sort of speaks to how new electricity was on a work site. It sort of reminds me about how many accidents were involved with, uh, with steam power in the earlier days of steam power in uh, mining operations or other construction sites where they would work the steam shovels to the point where the boiler would explode because they weren't trained properly on how to use this new technology.
1: Yeah. And I think it also goes back to the uh, point of the construction site being so chaotic. So add on top of the fact that you have so much chaos around you and you're trying to navigate the site with live animals and a wagon full of coal and then add on top of that... um, a wire that you may or may not be familiar with the uh, the hazard related to it. Uh, it did say in the coroner's inquest that although they didn't lay any overall fault to anyone as far as the construction site goes or the, the contractor who was working on the site, they did actually censure one of the workers. His name was George Vale. And apparently during the um, investigation, they find out that uh, as Estafi had been passing that area, George Vale had said to him, be careful of that wire it might bite. Well, if you had a language barrier, you might not have any idea what it was he was talking about. And uh, the coroner must have... Uh, agreed with that. The coroner's jury must have agreed with that because George Vale was censured for not staying with the wire, knowing it was live, and sending somebody for help to go and turn off the electricity. It could have, this accident could have easily prevented if they had just waited, sent someone to turn off the electricity, and uh, stayed near to keep an eye on it until then. But instead, he decided to go about his business. And uh, sadly, Estafi Eliasevich was the um, the victim in this particular situation.
0: In my research with the Welland Ship Canal, I've also seen a few instances of miscommunication with language. For example, um, at one point, a foreman would go and talk to these uh, workers who didn't quite speak the language and there was a misinterpretation. And then like within the hour, all the workers were on strike because they didn't understand what the foreman was asking. Um, Are there other examples of accidents where language is a key factor?
1: There are actually other accidents uh, during the construction of the ship canal where language was obviously um, a contributor to the accident. And you can just imagine that there were a lot of languages being spoken on this construction site. People were working uh, on the Wild Ship Canal from all over the world, all over Europe, North America, uh, and There must have been communication challenges just in general, as you say, just in day-to-day work, let alone in uh, maintaining health and safety. Uh, I do know that in some of the cases of... Um, coroner's inquests They had to have translators at the inquest because the witnesses to the accident didn't speak English. So obviously there were other instances where this kind of thing happened. And uh, I can just imagine not only is the language an issue, but potentially the dialect of the language might be an issue. So imagine... Not every man who came to Canada from Italy was from the same part of Italy and the dialect might have been different uh, depending on where you were from. And so that I'm sure would be just as much of a challenge as uh, just the language itself. So it's I imagine, very, very complicated when a language would have been a very complicating factor uh, added to all the other complications of such a huge construction site.
0: The St. Catherine Standard, October 18, 1932 Man killed today on Ship Canal Struck on the head by a log which had rolled down a 30-foot embankment, John Hawthorne, at Elizabeth and Ontario Streets, was almost instantly killed at Lock 3 on the Welland Ship Canal at 11.20 this morning. Hawthorne died in the ambulance on his way to the General Hospital. William Daniels, at 133 Queen Street, Porto was also struck by the log, but escaped with leg injuries. Five or six other men who were working with Hawthorne and Daniels narrowly escaped serious injury. The men were engaged in putting a sewer in just at the point where the abandoned and the present canals cross. They were working on this bed of the abandoned canal, and on top of the bank was a train with a derrick and flat cars loaded with huge tiles for use in the sewer. In one of the tiles was a log, four feet in length and some two feet in diameter. The log fell off the car, and before it could be stopped, was coming wildly down the slope toward the little group of men at work below. Before they had time to escape, Hawthorne and Daniels were struck. Hawthorne suffered a badly fractured skull and severe brain lacerations. Dr. E. D. Couts was called, but Hawthorne was beyond human aid. Obituary John W. Hawthorne The late John W. Hawthorne, who was fatally injured on the Welland Ship Canal yesterday, had been a resident of this vicinity for the past thirty years, for many years following the occupation as a sailor on the Great Lakes, but latterly being employed by the government of the canal he was in his 54th year and was well and favorably known by many friends who will learn of his sudden demise with sincere regret. He was a valued member of the loyal order of Moose Lodge, number 936 of this city, under whose auspices the funeral will be held. To mourn his passing, he leaves his sorrowing wife, one daughter, Irene, and one son, George, at home. Three sisters, Mrs. Smith and Miss Emma Hawthorne of Acton and Mrs. William McLeod of Toronto, and one brother, George, of Kitchener, also survive. The funeral will take place on Friday afternoon at 2.30 p.m. from the family residence at 132 Ontario Street to Victoria Lawn Cemetery, where internment will take place.
1: The story of John Hawthorne's accident during the Welland Ship Canal construction kind of brings together quite a number of themes with relation to uh, the types of hazards and the types of accidents on the the canal construction project. It's a little bit unusual of, of an accident because of the work that was being done. Technically, he wasn't really working on the construction of the ship canal. He was working on a bit of a side project of that, in that him and some other workmen were working on putting a sewer in the bottom part of the canal bed where the old canal and the new canal met close to lock three uh, and they were in the bottom of the the pit so to speak uh, and they were digging a sewer and on the top of the hill above them was a construction train from the construction railway that was carrying sewer tiles and also was carrying some wood for the uh, the project itself. This accident to me shows how random some of the accidents on the Welland Ship Canal could be. Um, essentially what happened was him and his uh, colleagues were digging the sewer and a piece of wood fell off the train and went careening down the hill and hit Hawthorne and one other man who the other man was badly injured and Hawthorne was killed and the other workers who were working in the pit along with him, um, survived the accident. So very very random. Uh, There were many accidents on the ship canal that were kind of similar where the man standing just a couple feet away from you survived a a terrible accident and one man was killed. A couple men were injured but one man was just close by and he was perfectly fine. Uh, It was almost miraculous in some cases where people had survived accidents that you could hardly imagine that they would be able to make it through. This accident and this story also uh, really talks a lot to me about the ripple effect that an accident like this would have uh, his obituary which you've already heard talks about his family his wife and daughter his son and his extended family the fact that he was a member of the moose lodge and uh, which was quite common a number of the workers on the Welland ship canal that we know of were members of fraternal organizations it was very common uh, and it talks about how a an accident like this could impact so many people. Uh, just because 137 men died building the well and Ship Canal doesn't mean it didn't impact thousands and thousands of people in the community, uh, social networks, friends, family, other workers, not to mention immediate family like wife and children. Uh, so these accidents were, in my opinion, <laughs> tragic for that reason in that um, it impacted such a large sphere of influence around the community.
0: So when you're looking at the accidents as a whole for all the fallen workers, um, it seems to me that the rail cars and the dump cars make uh, make an appearance in most of the accidents. So how common and frequent were dump car, rail car accidents? Uh,
1: John Hathorne's accident actually happened quite close to the end of the construction period a lot of the rail accidents happened earlier on in the uh, the early to middle part of the construction of the uh, the ship canal but there were a shocking number of accidents that were rail related uh, it's not surprising because the uh, construction railway was one of the largest railway projects in Canada at that time and uh, so it featured prominently in all parts of the construction but shocking a number of accidents where dump cars or rail cars hit people or their loads were dumped and the dumping load hit somebody and people and men were killed that way um so There were, as you say, a a large number, a shocking number of men who were killed in dump car accidents, and it doesn't actually seem like there was a lot of safety precautions put in place to try and mitigate those kinds of accidents. I do seem to, to kind of note some... Uh, safety precautions put in place when it comes to dump cars and that they put precaution in place so that the dump cars couldn't dump pre- their load prematurely or wouldn't dump their load in an unsafe manner, either in the wrong direction or on top of people. But uh, even with those safety precautions in place, there were dump car accidents where uh, the, the safety mechanism didn't work the way it was supposed to. So um, that was an unfortunate part of the... Uh, the project. Uh, But as the uh, construction project went on, they actually used the construction railway uh, to try to help in accidents of this sort as well. So the construction railway was actually used to help get men to safety uh, in the case of accidents, get them to first aid, get them to the construction hospital. Uh, so it did um, It did serve a really useful purpose from that perspective, as well as, you know, just to get people and things and supplies around the construction site for kilometers and kilometers and kilometers. The Ship Canal is a huge construction project, so needing a construction railway was, I'm sure, one of the biggest priorities when they first started this and when they were planning the The construction in the first place. So as I mentioned the Well and Ship Canal was a massive construction project but not only was it just a massive construction project it was a huge deal for Canada. The improvements that were made as part of building the Well and Ship Canal and improving the uh, previous canals kept Canada's commerce competitive on the world stage. It's unfortunate that This project, which is such a massive project, has almost overshadowed the fact that 137 men were killed in the uh, course of the work. And so the Welland Canal Fallen Workers Memorial Project is really the purpose of that is to bring out these stories of the men who were killed and to make sure that their stories aren't forgotten and that their deaths um, were not uh, left to um, to history. Over the course of the work to uh, put together this Fallen Workers Memorial, there has been quite a bit of research that has been done. It's probably the first time that as much research has been done about these 137 men, and it's really nice to know that their stories will no longer be uh, forgotten to history or lost to history. There's still a lot of work to be done. There's still a bunch of stories that we only know bits and pieces from each man, but as we go along, we're hoping to be able to, to flesh out those stories and to be able to tell more of them so that uh, their memory is able to continue. to live on uh, throughout the project. The Fallen Workers Memorial Project is uh, a big project. It includes a number of different components. The first is the memorial itself, which is going to be built uh, adjacent to lock three, just at the very um, bottom end of the museum property. And it is going to be a very beautiful, stunning uh, place where People will be able to come and reflect on the canal construction, the men who lost their lives in the canal construction, and the men who lost their lives in other canal constructions whose names, sadly, are really lost to history at this point. And uh, really just remember the uh, the impact that a large construction project can have. So there's the memorial. And then on top of that, there is uh, every week in the St. Catherine Standard, there's an article that is printed that features the story of each of the construction workers. So one every week for 137 weeks. And on top of that, once all of those are completed, there will be a publication that will be put together that will tell the stories of all these men, as the standard has been doing, and will also share more information about the construction project, the construction railway, construction hospital, first aid, all kinds of different components of uh, working and building the well and ship canal, That stories that haven't been told so far. And on top of that... To complement all of these, the museum currently has an exhibit. And I encourage all of our listeners to come and see the exhibit Heroes in Peace. Take a look at the images of the construction site and of the men who are featured in this exhibit. And it'll really give you a better sense of what it, was, what it is that we've been talking about today. And uh, you can really have a kind of visual to the stories that you've already heard today.
2: If you would like to learn more about the fallen workers and their stories, we're offering cemetery tours for the first weekend of August. They are free to the public and going to be very, very interesting. We're going to talk all about their stories. So if you are interested in the tours, please visit our website. We're going to be linking the poster in the footnotes on our blog. And you're also more than welcome to call the museum and we can give you all the information. We are still looking for donations to help fund our memorial project. If you are interested in donating to the memorial, please visit our website at stcatherine's.ca/fallenworkersmemorial.
0: Thank you for joining us for this podcast episode about the fallen workers of the Welland Ship Canal. Please come and visit our exhibition dedicated to these workers called Heroes in Peace, Building the Well and Ship Canal. And make sure to take an audio guide with you. All are available by donation. The exhibit is open through February 1st, 2018.
2: Make sure to spend time with us online by following us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash St. Catharines Museum, on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at STC Museum and online at our website, stkatharinesmuseum.com, and our blog, stkatharinesmuseumblog.com. Don't forget to share
1: this podcast episode with your network, your friends, and your family. This episode of Museum Chat Live was produced by Sarah Nixon, Adrian Petrie, and Kathleen Powell. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and the City of St. Catharines.